Years ago, my son Char, we had this, uh, well, Char was all of three years old, and we had a two-year-old come to our house, and the two-year-old kept taking Char's toys, and Char would walk up to him and go, not safe for babies, and take it away. And it just kept doing it over and over again, not safe for babies, and take these weapons away from him. And that's what the Lord does with us, not safe for you. You know, when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane and Judas came with the Roman soldiers and with the temple guards with their torches and lanterns and weapons to arrest Jesus, Peter took the sword out of his sheath and just began to madly strike out. And he was so ineffective. All he did was lop off the ear of the high priest's servant. He didn't stop. He just made it more confusing. And Jesus said to Peter, Peter, put your sword back in the sheath. He who takes up the sword will die by the sword. That's not how we fight. That's Obviously, it's not effective. It did nothing. In fact, what it did is it brought Peter into harm's way. And if it wasn't for the fact that Jesus healed Malchus' ear, Peter would have been arrested that night too. And the Lord wanted to fight the fight for Peter. He wanted to go alone to Calvary to fight for us. But sometimes as believers, we take the weapons of the enemy And we try to use those. And when we use the weapons of the enemy, we are so ineffective in this warfare. We don't get the promises. We just bring confusion. We just bring chaos. We just make more problems for Jesus. So we do. Like, well, this was a bigger mess than I intended. But that's how we are. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 through 6, and you know these scriptures, Paul says, for though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments in every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ and being ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. You know, the other day, The Lord spoke to me so strongly. He said, Cheryl, I don't need you to defend me. You're like, what? Yeah, I'm always like, what'd you say about Jesus? You know, don't you dare say that about Jesus. And the Lord says, you know what? I don't need you to defend me. Just like I didn't need Peter to defend me. I need you to obey me. I need you to go forward. You see, sometimes we take these defensive positions Instead of simply going forward in the word of God and with the gospel that we have. You know, the enemy aligns against us and we want to take these defensive positions instead of these offensive. And I don't mean being, you know, rude. I mean going forth with the gospel. We've got the greatest message of all. We've got the word of God. We need to go forward with what God has given us. You see, our victory, our inheritance in the promises, it's not predicated on who's got the bigger forces. You know, how many are in the enemy camp versus how many are in the Jesus camp? Doesn't make a difference. God has always dealt with the remnants. Remember Gideon's army? Brian's going to speak about that um, next Wednesday night. But the Lord, he kept making Gideon's army smaller and smaller. There were 10,000 against a hundred thousand. And God says, your army's too big because you'll say it was the size of the force. I'm going to have to reduce you and reduce you. And then when it comes to the weaponry, I'm sure Gideon was hoping for like some really big things like chariots. And God says, take a torch, take a pot and take a sword. This is all you need to fight this great big horde. Because it's not predicated on who's got more people in their army. Neither is it predicated on who's got the better strategy. But the enemy's got the good plans. They've got geniuses that work on these lies and on their strategies. 
You know, they're, they're going out. They know how to get the kids and they know how to just influence. And look at our plans. Look at our plans. This is our playbook. This is our instructions. And sometimes we think that the enemy has the better strategy, but God's got the best strategy. And it's not about who's got the better weapons. Well, it actually is, but you see, we have the better weapons. But sometimes we look at the world's weapons and go, they've got the chariots. You know, they've got the big chariots. They've got the tanks. And what do we have? We have love. We've got grace. We can't even be mean to them. Or who has the most fighting experience? They've got the cavalry. I keep saying cavalry. No, we've got cavalry. They've got the cavalry. If they had men on horses who were experienced, they knew what they were doing, riders. So sometimes they're like, they, they know how to fight. Yeah, they've been fighting. They, they know what they want to bring down Christianity, to, to outlaw the Bible. But victory has everything to do with who has the promises of God. Who's got the promises of God? Who's got and following the instruction manual of God? We are not to be intimidated by the enemy's strength and number, their strategies or wiles, their weaponry or their expertise. We're not to be intimidated by that. Nor are we to imitate the world. You know, there's that old saying, it's not in the Bible, fight fire with fire. That's not what God says. He says, fight fire with the living water. It's much more productive to putting out the fire. You see, there is an inherent danger in every believer to be overly impressed with the enemy's size, with the enemy's strategies, with the enemy's weaponry, and with the enemy's expertise. To be intimidated. So first impressed, intimidated, or scared of the enemy's size, strategies, weaponry, and expertise. And finally, there's a danger as believers to imitate the enemy's size. Well, if we can just get a whole group together and we can go and we can march against this, if we can just get a group together, you know, it only takes two or three to bring the presence of the Lord. It only takes two or three agreeing as touching one thing to have that thing broken and bound in the name of Jesus, or to have that thing loosed in the name of Jesus. Only takes two or three. Matthew 18, Jesus says, wherever two or three are gathered in my name, I am there. And that's what we need. We need the presence of the Lord. So we're not to imitate the enemy's size. You know, sometimes we don't move out because we don't have enough people. We don't need the enemy's strategy. We don't want to use their plans. I know of a lot of ministries who bring in experts from Hollywood, from the Fortune 500 companies to say how to build a church, how to finance a church, how to, you know, how to win friends and manipulate people. That's not, that's not what we do. That's, we don't imitate their strategy. That's what you do. But I have a heavenly father who knows what I have need of, who's got his own strategy, and I just need to listen to him. We are not to imitate the enemy's weaponry. Well, they use chariots. Let's get some chariots of our own or their expertise. We're not professional fighters. We're not. We're a bunch of farmers who are just waiting to get our property. As believers, we need to guard against leaving the spiritual armament that God has given us, that he has given us for victory, that we may lay claim to the promises of God. We need to not leave these effective weapons for the armament of the flesh. 
God has given us a different way to fight. We do fight. We fight the good fight. But we do not fight as the world fights. As Paul says, for though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. We do not war like those without a heavenly father, with those who do not have the captain of the Lord's army on their side. We do not fight like those who live in disobedience to God. Their weapons are lies. Their weapons are slander. Their weapons are anger. Their weapons are hatred. I mean, they literally get themselves all worked up. You know, coyotes will band together and literally get themselves worked up. Um, I don't know if you've ever heard coyotes getting themselves worked up, but they start like, and there's this, it, it sounds like a party going on with the coyotes. And you know that they're going, they're working themselves up to go after their prey. And it's just crazy. In Vista, when I used to live in Vista, a lot of people have peacocks. And they have peacocks because peacocks kill rattlesnakes. So people would um, move to rural Vista and they would get peacocks. But you know what coyotes love to eat? Peacocks. And so the coyotes, you would hear them start working themselves up. And then the next thing you would hear, I had a friend who moved to the country. She hated it. She lived there like three weeks. It was like, I can't take this. Because the coyotes would work themselves up. And the next thing you heard was a, a peacock screaming. It was not pleasant. But the world has to work itself up. You know, and they find each other and like, we hate, we hate, we hate. And, you know, just reading some of the world's comments on Billy Graham. I'm, I'm, I'm like, Lord, how dare they do that? It's just, it's unnecessary. It, it's cruel. It's, it's barbaric. And they work themselves up with hatred. I remember a, a woman that I was counseling one time. I said to her, I believe you have a biblical right to everything you're doing. But your attitude and your hatred is going to eat you up and absolutely destroy you. I said, if you can do what you're doing in love and be empowered by love and grace, then I say, go forward. And she looked at me and she said, you don't understand. It's my hatred that makes me strong. And with my, my hatred, I can't do this. I said, you don't understand. It's your hatred that will kill you and destroy you. And she ended, she ended up in a mental institution. I got a note from another friend saying, will you please go visit her? Hatred does not make you strong. But this is how the world fights. They fight with hatred. All you need to do is go on Facebook and you'll know how they fight with hatred and bullying. They fight with threats, which is bullying. They fight with intimidation, with a show of force, with strategies and plans and espionage, spying, hearing everything that the enemy is doing and saying. And if we just know their plans, they fight with weapons, with guns, with knives, with tanks, and they're practiced in the art of warfare. They're professional fighters. This is what they do. They go on Facebook and they fight and they fight and they lie and they slander and they fight and they fight. They go on the media and they fight. We as believers are called to fight, but we're called to the good fight. And we are to fight by using the spiritual weapons that God has given us. We fight by his word. We fight by faith in his word. As we believe his word, we fight with his presence and with his favor towards us and with his instructions and by obedience to those instructions. And these weapons that he has given us are absolutely effective. Why does God withhold the other weapons from us? Why can't we lie? Because it's ineffective in the end. Because in the end, it will lose the battle. 
you know, why can't, why can't we use swords? Because in the end, it will lose the battle. He has given us the most effective weapons. They are mighty. And God knows how mighty they are. That's why the enemy wants to tell you that. You're going to use that against me? Because inside he's cowering at the mighty weapons that God has given us. They are mighty and they pull down. They're 100% effective in pulling down strongholds. They cast down strategies and arguments. They take captive and they punish all disobedience. We see this in Joshua 11 in a physical form. What is the spiritual reality that the weapons that God has given us are mighty, are stronger, are better? You see, we just need to receive and understand how great our weaponry is. How great the sword of the spirit is. How great the helmet of salvation is. How great the breastplate of righteousness is. How great the shield of faith, which is able to quench every fiery dart of the devil. How great our shoes are that are the gospel of Jesus Christ. All our weaponry is for going forward, forward, advancing taking hold of the promises of God, taking the land for God. The problem is that we as Christians are often drawn to the instruments of the flesh. Why? Because they are so readily available. Yelling is just right there. But Cheryl, you can yell. Yell. I can yell. They're just right there. You know, I think back at Star Wars, where Luke is standing before the evil emperor. And, you know, there's that light, lightsaber. It's just right there. The emperor says, you want it, don't you? I can feel it in you. Take it. Give in to the hatred, Luke. And Luke's like, Oh, I feel that so much. Cheryl, you could yell. (laughs) You know? Cheryl, you can lie. (laughs) It's so strong. And it's drawing me in. Why? Because it's right there. It's right here. It's right before me. I can grab it. I don't even have to pray about it. In fact, if I pray about it, I won't use it. It's just right there. It's so readily available. And it looks like so strong. I mean, it glows. It intimidates. I mean, you saw what he did before. It's right there. And it seems to have an immediate effect. I mean, think what it did with all those guys in the white outfits. Their heads, their limbs are just flying off. You know, it's just immediate I yell, everyone goes, hey, we're out of here. Just leave her alone. She's yelling. I scream, I cry. Everyone's like, it's get away from Cheryl Day. It has an immediate effect. But God is calling us to remove these weapons from the arsenal of our heart, to take them out, to make it so hatred is not an option. Anger is not an option. Yelling is not an option. Lying is not an option. Slander is not an option. We need to get them out of our heart. In fact, we need to hamstring them so that these things cannot be used to fight. We need to burn them completely so we can't go back to them. In Joshua 11, we see that the battle intensifies. We've got the kingdom of Hazor. Now, Hazor is the dominant king of Canaan. He's the one that all the other kingdoms look to and are intimidated by. He's the strongest. He's the one that rules them all. So when he calls the other kingdoms, 
the ones that are left, to fight against Israel. They all come together in a line. One huge federation, Jodab, king of Madon, then the king of Shimron, king Akshaf, the kings of the north, the kings of the mountain, the kings of the south plains, the kings of the lowland, the kings of the heights, the kings of the east and west and Canaan, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Hivites. They all answer the call from Hazar and they align together against Israel, all their armies, all the men of battle. These are soldiers and it's a great multitude. It can't even be counted. It can't even be counted. There's so many as far as any Israelite can see. All he sees is the enemy. Every place he looks, there's the enemy. And they're armed and they're aggressive. They're aligned and they're, they're angry. And they're ready to take Israel down and to kill them, to annihilate them. It reminds me not to keep using illustrations from movies, but in Lord of the Rings, when you see all those orcs, you know, as far as the eye can see, you know, I read the book and the book's not as terrifying as the movie, but when you see orc after orc and they are ugly, do we not agree? They're just like, and, and they're like gangly and there's so many of them. Every place you look, it's an orc. It's a lots of orcs. And they're angry and they're, they're beastly. They're, they're like sharks. They have, they have no other impulse but kill and eat. And that must have been what it, was, what it was like for Israel as they look out. Here is this angry army that has only one aim. And that is to wipe out, to kill every single Israelite. Some things haven't changed, have they? And they gather together and they camp at Merom. They camp within sight of Israel. Part of their strategy is to just intimidate Israel. I was reading, and don't ask me why. Well, I know why I read the article. I read the article so I could have something to talk with Brian about and really impress him. It was an article on the fight between George Foreman and Muhammad Ali. And Brian used to be a Golden Gloves boxer, so I thought, oh, I'm going to read this article. And then Brian will be so impressed that I know something about Muhammad Ali and George Foreman who are two of the boxing greatest. And they had this bout that they fought in Africa. And George Foreman was the heavyweight champion. And Muhammad Ali had um, his title taken away because he refused to go to war in Vietnam. And so he had been kicked out of the boxing world for a while. So he hadn't been boxing. So now he's coming back. And right away, they put him in the ring with George Foreman, the heavyweight championship champion. So Muhammad Ali does this week of absolute intimidation where he walks by George Foreman's hotel every morning walking to tigers. Every morning. Just like, yeah, I can handle tigers and I can handle you. And they said that Muhammad Ali was more about the intimidation than even about the fight. And I hate to tell you this, but George Foreman, even though he made that great grill and named all of his children George and the girls George Jet, he lost. He lost. And those who witnessed the fight said it had much to do with the intimidation. And that's one of the greatest weapons of the enemy, just to simply intimidate. And this is what we see here, that they are intimidating. It's impressive. It's intimidating. They have the chariots all lined up. They've got the cavalry, cavalry, cavalry. They have it. The men are on their steeds and, and they're ready to do battle. And this is what Joshua has. He has the word of the Lord. Verse six. 
the word of the Lord. It says, the word of the Lord came to Joshua saying, do not be afraid because of them. For tomorrow about this time, I will deliver all of them slain before Israel. You shall hamstring their horses and burn their chariots with fire. Verse six. This word contains an enablement. When God says, do not be afraid, he is at the very moment taking the fear out of us. Don't you love that? Because when someone tells me, do not be afraid, I often answer, why not? You know, what, what are you bringing to the table that's going to take away my fear? My, my youngest grandson, no. Yes, my youngest grandson. From the time he was two, he would come in the room and say, nobody worry. I've got it all under control. And you're like, okay, what did you break and what is going wrong? It's like the toilet's overflowing, but don't worry. I've got it all under control. I've taken all your towels, mom, and I'm wiping it up. That actually happened. <laughs> you know, don't worry. I've got it all under control. Well, I feel great when a three-year-old tells me that. It's like the fear is just gone. Let's go forward. You know, the first thing you do is panic. Or when your husband comes in and says, don't be afraid. You're like, okay, now I'm afraid. I wasn't before. I was living a very happy life. I was drinking my coffee. It was great. But you came in, you said, don't be afraid. So now I know there's cause for fear. And you're about to tell me the cause for fear. You know, and right away, I'm like, is it the IRS? Is it, you know, what's the cause? Because there's a cause for fear whenever someone says, don't be afraid. But when God says, don't be afraid, and he's already given you the victory over the kings of the south because he fought the battle, because he threw down the hailstones, because he routed the enemy. And God is now saying, do not be afraid. With this word, there's an enablement and an encouragement and the power not to be afraid. Don't you love it? I love it when God speaks peace to the Galilee. It's all full of, of churning and waves breaking. But Jesus says, peace. Peace where there is no peace. Peace where there's a deficiency of peace. He speaks his peace into it and the waves calm and the wind ceases. He speaks it into the situation and there is peace. When God looked at the darkness and said, let there be light. He spoke light into the deficit where there was no light and there's light. So when God says, do not fear, he is speaking courage into the fear and the fear has to leave because God is speaking his word in and there's no room. And he says, do not be afraid. This word also contains a promise. And I love that this promise has a time element tomorrow. Oh, Lord, thank you for tomorrow. Do you realize that God has limited the power of the enemy, the scope of the enemy, and the time of the enemy? You know, they can get together and they can look really strong, but there is a time limit to the enemy. I was just reading in my personal devotions, Revelation chapter 19 this morning. And I love it when all of a sudden the heavens open and there's the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords on his white steed and on his thigh is written, you know, King of Kings and Lord of Lords and he is faithful and true and in righteousness he wages war. Oh, he's the only one that can rage war in righteousness and his robe looks like it's dipped in blood. Because he has survived the wrath of God and the wrath of man. He is the ultimate conqueror over life and death. This, this is the time element. In chapter 19, it's like time's up. Time's up for the, for the forces of evil. Time's up. It's over. Jesus speaks. The army falls back. They're consumed. The Antichrist, the beast, and the serpent are captured. You got to get to chapter 20. Then they're thrown into the pit. That part, I can't wait. That's tomorrow. There's God's involvement, his promise. I will deliver. 
Joshua, it's not predicated on you. It's not up to you. You don't have to be super strong because I know you're already 120 years old. It's not up to you. It's not about your strength, Joshua. It's not about your courage. It's simply about me and my promises. I will deliver. And Joshua would no doubt remember that the kings of the south, God made the same promise. And what happened? Again, the enemy was routed. The enemy was defeated. And then here's an instruction. You shall hamstring all their horses and burn their chariots with fire. Joshua has all he needs for victory against this huge horde. He's got God's word. He's got God's instructions. He's got God's involvement. In verses in 7, 8, we see the battle that Joshua goes on the orders of the Lord. He attacks suddenly. God's got a time element. Attack now. You see, before the enemy can throw his punch, Joshua goes forward. Joshua goes forward. They're all aligned in battle array. But it's Joshua that goes forward. He doesn't stand and wait for the enemy to fight, for the enemy to come at him. He goes forward. He runs at the enemy just like David ran at Goliath with his sling. He, he goes forward. You see, sometimes we're just hiding and we're just waiting for the enemy to hit us. And the Lord is calling us to go forward with him, go forward with the gospel. He comes upon the enemy suddenly with the army of Israel. And we're told that the Lord delivered the enemy into the hand of Israel. And Israel ended up chasing the enemy to the brook of Mezrephoth and the valley of Mizpah. And they left none remaining. They're chasing down the chariots. They're chasing down the cavalry. You know, see, my mouth is so changed just to say Calvary. I pray for Calvary Chapel, every prayer, Calvary, Calvary. So when I have to say Calvary, throws me. But he chases them down and he does not stop short. We read about his obedience. He hamstrings the horses and burns the chariots. Now for those who are going, he hamstrings the horses. And I know you're out there. What he did is he they probably sliced the hamstring, but it did, not, it did not kill the horses. It maimed them so they could only be used for agricultural purposes. They can still be ridden. They can still go to those wonderful horse farms. They can still be used for, um, you know, um, making more horses. But they could not, they could no longer be used for warfare. Because you see, the natural propensity would be to take those horses and then use them in the next battle. And to begin to trust in those horses. Well, we got the horses. (laughs) Yeah, well, they might have that, but we got horses. You should see these horses. They're strong. They're invincible. To take those weapons and then begin to trust in the weaponry rather in the Lord. In fact, in Proverbs, it says, when you become rich, do not trust in your riches. How often when we get a little money in the bank account, we start to like, well, I got a savings account. Well, God knows how to deal with those savings accounts, doesn't he? Gives you a couple more bills. No chariots. They were to burn the chariots so that they would not take those chariots and use them, incorporate them into the army of Israel. In fact, you'll see a constant prohibition against chariots. Even when David had the army of Israel, there was not one chariot. He didn't use chariots. Again, it's too easy for Israel to begin to trust in the enemy's weaponry. So God says, burn it, hamstring it, so you won't even be tempted to use it. Because when you begin to trust in anything but the Lord, in any type of weaponry but the Lord, it is a step away from the promises of God. It's a step away from faith in God. It's a step away from victory through God. It is faith in God and his word that brings victory, not faith in the size of our army, the strategy of our army, 
And, you know, as strategies, sometimes it will be our ways, our lecture, our intelligence, our advantage. I mean, how many times have you thought, oh, when I tell the person this speech, you ever write speeches? I do. Or when I send them this letter or I send them this email and we write these perfectly um, eloquent letters and we get back something that is just like, you know, mean. We wrote this nice rebuke, just telling them how low they were and how they needed to repent. And then they write us these things like, shut up. And you're like, what? How dare you? Mine was in such love. Um, We often think that that thing that we say, as women, we fight with our words, don't we? We say mean words. And, uh, And sometimes we say mean things so nicely. Wow, your makeup looks so good today. Because you've got an ugly face. I'm so glad you covered it well with that makeup. You're, you're definitely good at painting. You know what I mean? Backward compliments. I had a woman say to me, you looked so nice last Tuesday. <laughs> oh, no, there's Wednesday and Thursday and Friday and Saturday and Sunday and Monday. And you don't look so good on those days. But Tuesdays, that's your day. It's not how we fight. It's not what we do. And don't try to use that one. You look so good on Friday. (laughs) But we women, we often use our words. You know, I found one of, oh, a favorite word of mine. And I don't know why, but it seems to carry so much power. And I used to use it. I stopped using it because God told me I had to. But I love the word jerk. I don't know. There's something so powerful about saying, you jerk. You know, you beef jerky. It just feels so good. Jerk. You know, your husband's driving. You're like, jerk. They do. They jerk then just to prove that you were right. Jerk. And you know, just like, oh, jerk. You know, somebody's driving erratically. I'm like, jerk. It's like right there. You want, don't you? Yes, I love that word. (laughs) And we women, we use these words. And you know, if our husband said that to us, we'd be like, on February 21st, 2018, at 2.03 in the afternoon, you said jerk. You know, we, we remember, we store it up. And we're like, they're like, do you know how many times you've said that to me? I just say that word. It just comes out of my mouth. But I didn't mean it. You meant it. You know, aren't we? Seriously? Come on, I'm not alone in this. But we use words. That's how we fight. And, you know, we're hurting so many people with our words. And God says, I don't want any corrupt communication to come out of your mouth. Corrupt, that word corrupt doesn't just mean, you know, naughty words. It means any words that makes the person you're talking to feel less than. I don't want you to make anyone feel less than. Oh, my goodness. That's how I fight my best. I just make everyone feel a lot less than me. And... And God says, no, no more condemning ugly words. I want you to say things only that build up people, that edify people, that let them know that there's a God that loves them. We don't fight like the world fights. We are not to fight with mean words. Their weapons were chariots, and the world's weapon are mean words. Mean. They say things that are so low, that are so ugly. They mock. The world mocks. That's one of their weapons. They mock. And oh, we want to mock sometimes. We want to belittle. We want to mock. And like, <laughs> and God says, Mm-mm-mm-mm-mm. don't do that. That's what they do. That's not what my children do. It's not what my daughters do. 
It is not about how many battles we have fought and won. It is about the battle we're in and how we fight. Are we fighting by the word of the Lord, by the favor of the Lord, by faith in that word? Joshua burned Hazor with fire. He took down the stronghold in verse 10. And how did he do it? He did it by faith in the Lord, by following God's instruction, because this, it's through obedience that strongholds are brought down. And then he took all the cities and completely overthrew them. He utterly destroyed them as Moses instructed. Again, he continues in thorough obedience to the Lord. Verse 15, he left nothing undone of all that the Lord commanded him. Joshua completely followed the Lord's instructions. Now, here's the difference between men and women, just real quick. Women, we like instruction manuals. Well, most of you. Some of you don't. You just look at the pictures just like men. I'm one of those people. I have to read the whole instruction manual before I say, Brian, help me build this furniture. And then I like to tell him what to do. It's so fun. It's about the only time he like thoroughly obeys me. Like, what comes next? I'm so glad you asked. Because the manual says... But, you know, if you don't follow the instructions, that furniture is not going to turn out like you saw it on the display floor. You have to follow the instructions. So God has the instruction manual for victory. He tells us how the long term, the great victory is won. And it's only as we follow his instructions, his instructions that we can expect. Expect to see the promise fulfilled, what we saw on the display floor. Joshua does not rest on the laurels of victory. He pursues the enemy, verse 16. He takes down the kings, verse 17. He wages a long time war against the enemy, verse 18. He will not let the enemy go. He will continually fight against the enemy until he is destroyed. Once the enemy is destroyed, Joshua goes after the giants. Oh my goodness, this battle never ends while we're on earth. You know, we fight the big forces, but then we've got to thoroughly take the victory according to the Lord's instructions. We're on the offense. We're taking down the strongholds by by obedience, by taking every thought into the captivity of Jesus Christ. And then we go after the giants. Oh, my goodness. Verse 21 and 22, these are the giants that intimidated their fathers from taking the land. These are the giants. And God declares a continual war against the enemy. God has purposes for his instructions, for doing it his way. One, he knows the future. He knows the future. He knows what will bring victory and what will sabotage victory. He knows the enemy. He knows that the enemy will not be stopped by our carnal weapons. He knows that the enemy plans on regrouping and attacking again. He knows the hardness of their heart and their inability to change their desire for destruction. He knew Gibeon would repent and they were spared, but he knew the hardness of the hearts of the other Canaanites, verse 20. He knows who will respond to mercy like Rahab and the Gibeonites and who will never respond to mercy. He also knows our natural propensities that we tend to rely on horses and chariots. But he knows what he intends to do for us, that he intends to give us the land. He intends to give us the strongholds and to remove and drive out the giants from our life so that they are no longer an intimidating force. These giants were driven to Gaza. Gaza is where Goliath and his brothers lived. They were the last of Anak, the last of the remnants of the giants. 
and David and then David's men took them out completely. First, the Lord drove them to Gaza. And then through David, he completely wiped them out. Verse Samuel 17. God knows that he wants to give us the spoils of the enemy. There's a scripture in Proverbs 13.22, and it says, The wealth of the sinner is stored up for the righteous. The wealth of the sinner is stored up for the righteous. There's another scripture um, in Genesis 50, where Joseph says to his brothers, You intended it for evil, but God used it for good, that he might bring about things as they are today. There's another scripture in the Psalms that says, God uses even the wrath of man. Even the wrath of man. God uses this federation of all these nations to give Joshua all the land, to give the children of Israel all the land, all the promises. It's just like a one big fight. And then it's just lesser fights, fights that are already won, fights that are already guaranteed. But he uses it to give Israel all the land, to give them all the good things he's promised, to give them the territory of the enemy. God uses the plans of the enemy, the strategy of the enemy against him. Think about it. Haman was hung on his own gallows. Pharaoh ordered that all the children be drowned in the Nile River. And God drowned the army of Pharaoh in the Red Sea. You see, God turns it around and uses the weapons of the enemy against them that he might give us the territory, that he might give us the good things that he has promised. All of these things only work together in God's purposes. But we as his people need to fight effectively. The warfare that wins the promises of God, that takes the land, that drives out the enemy, and enjoys and settles into the promises of God is the warfare that refuses to be intimidated by the size and weapons of the enemy, that refuses to imitate the strategies of the enemy, that refuses to use the weapons of the enemy or to rely on past experience or past glory. Effective warfare listens to the word of God, obeys the instructions of God, relies on the weapons of God, and looks to God's power and God's presence for victory. Lastly, let me remind you once more, God is absolutely 100% committed to his promises. And he's committed to bringing you into everything that he's promised. He has already given you everything you need to win, to claim, to settle into the promises. It doesn't matter how strong the enemy is or what their size or what their weaponry or what their strategy is. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. God is stronger. He is greater. He is more powerful. Again, referring to Revelation because I've been in there this week. When Jesus comes against the enemy, he comes as a lamb. I love that. He faces off the Antichrist as the lamb of God who's taken away the sin of the world. He doesn't come as the lion of the tribe of Judah. He doesn't roar. He's the lamb that speaks and they're slain. Jesus is so powerful. The armies of heaven are with him on white steed clothed in the finest white linen. But he doesn't need the armies of heaven. 
He only needs his word and the battle is over and he's won. You have that powerful word of God with you right now to win effectively the promises of God and to settle into them. God fights for you as you obey his word. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you are for us. Lord, you promised that if you are for us, who can be against us? And Lord, the one that is for us, the one who has the power of life and death, the one whose eyes burn with fire, the one who is faithful and true, who in righteousness wages war, the one who is the King of kings and the Lord of lords is for us. And he has promised great things to us. And you, Lord, are able and you alone are able to bring us into all that you have promised us. Lord, help us to put down the ineffective weapons. Oh, Lord, there are things that we need to be delivered from. Lord, there are your daughters out there. And I put myself right with them, Lord. Lord, we need to hamstring the horses in our heart. Lord, those things that we've been relying on, and we need to burn the chariots, Lord, that we might fight effectively by prayer, by love, by grace, by the gospel, instead of by angry words, hate-filled speech, opposition, unkindness. Oh God, we pray that you would take away the weaponry of the flesh and replace it with the weaponry of the spirit that is mighty in you. Oh Lord, we ask this in Jesus' name.